Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. Sustainable Stories is here to bring you the stories behind sustainability in our communities. From big to small, practical to theoretical, we're exploring the people and projects that are working to make our world a more sustainable, equitable, and healthy place to live. Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. My name is Jenna Inglot, and I will be your host for today's episode. I'm coming to you today from my house in near Blaine Lake, Saskatchewan on Treaty 6 territory. And I'm really excited about today's episode because I am speaking with Wilson Fink. And Wilson and I grew up in the same small town in southeastern Saskatchewan um, and went to school together pretty much our whole lives and so this is a really exciting conversation for me to learn a bit more about Wilson um, and the work that he does. So Wilson studied agroecology at the University of Manitoba and now works as a research technician in the natural systems agriculture lab. So welcome Wilson. Thanks for being here today. Yeah happy to be here. Thanks. So um, Wilson, just as I have so many questions about um, the Natural Systems Agriculture Lab, and I've done some digging on the, the website, but um, just to start us off, I'm curious a little bit about who you are, um, what you do, and kind of a bit about your journey that led you to your role uh, within the Natural Systems Ag Lab. Sure, yeah, well, um, I don't know if my background is as, as interesting as a lot of your other guests, but um, I... I started, um, well, I grew up on a farm just outside of Momart, um, in Southeast Saskatchewan. And I did a little bit of work kind of in high school in electronics and shortly after high school. And then my partner Shelby got, uh, accepted into the university of Manitoba's dietetics program. So I kind of followed her there and applied to the U of M and I started off in environmental science, but quickly moved into agroecology. It's a, it's another science-based program uh, within the department of agriculture. And then um, from there got to know one of my professors, Dr. Martin Ants in my last year of school and got to talking to him and he was hiring for some summer students. So I got a job in the summer of 2019 with Dr. Ants. And then that sort of just transitioned, transitioned into a full-time position where I'm a technician there now. Awesome. Super cool. Um, so can you talk a bit about the agroecology program? Like I, I, I studied environmental science. I, you know, I know lots of people who have been through kind of a typical agriculture program of study. I'm curious about agroecology and, and, you know, how you would describe that and what the studies were like. Yeah, sure. So it's, I guess, uh, it's it's similar in some ways to kind of traditional agronomy, but then it's uh, quite different in other ways. But it's I guess it's kind of a model of food production, which really considers environmental stewardship and environmental quality. So um, it's taking into account things like soil health and conservation, um, plant diversity. Um, it advocates for like crop livestock integration, uh, more holistic forms of pest management. Uh, nutrient management, all that kind of stuff, but it's it's still accredited. Like uh, you can still be a you know a professional agrologist 
um, with your agriculture degree and it's a, you know, it's a four year undergrad program, but it's really cool. Yeah. I think the U of M might be the only place in Canada to offer it now, I think. Cool. But yeah, it's uh, I guess it's also, it's a system. It takes a systems approach to agriculture. So um, a lot of the problems that it seeks to solve can't really be solved with like a, a, you know, a really specific fix. It sort of has to, you know, look at the whole system and correct things um, with that kind of management style. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I love that. I think, I mean, yeah, a lot of the traditional agriculture programs I know have moved um, into a space of being, uh, you know, sort of prescriptive in the way that we deal with challenges in agriculture. So it's like, okay, yeah. the, you, you have this problem, here's the solution um, without, you, you use the term holistic, but without thinking about the holistic way that that solution might impact something else like it's really just about problem solution problem solution so um it's really cool that you know you're thinking about it from a systems perspective and and you know from an ecological perspective like how do we integrate agriculture back into the natural systems that exist on the landscape which is cool yeah exactly and a lot of it's kind of analogous to like the human body if you have a if you have a headache you can just take an advil and that might fix it. But then if you get a headache every day, you don't want to just keep taking Advils at a certain point. You got to sort of figure out what's the root cause here. And it might require like actual lifestyle changes. And that's, I guess, the philosophy in agroecology. Cool. Yeah, that's really, really neat. Um, so what does your day to day? So just to preface this, folks, we're recording this podcast on the weekend because Wilson is now into harvest season at the lab. So, um, Wilson, I'm curious a bit about like what your day to day and I'm sure it changes from day to day and, and seasonally. But what is your day to day kind of look like as a research technician? Um, yeah. What does that look like? Yeah, well, I, I guess, yeah, it does depend on the day, but we have a whole bunch of different experiments that are being uh, executed by different graduate students and uh, other research associates. Um, and we do projects kind of in collaboration with other organizations like Agriculture and Agri-Foods Canada or um, uh, some of the more local provincial institutes. So lots of different projects going on. Uh, most of the ones we do or that I'm, I'm involved in are actual field trials. So we're doing kind of small plot research in, of different cropping systems, uh, which includes everything from like intercropping trials to um, different nutrient management trials. We've actually had um, we've had livestock trials where we have sheep come and graze uh, small plots and look at the effects on the soil and um, all kinds of things like that. So my day, I guess, is um, depends on the time of year, but we'll have to in the spring set up a bunch of different seed and and measure out these trials and then get them planted throughout the year. We'll um, manage the weeds, take a bunch of measurements um, throughout the season. And then now in the, well, we're still in summer, but usually it would be <laughs> closer to fall. We would start to harvest these things um, with kind of small plot equipment, like little combines. Um, but we're starting harvest early this year because there's just been um, a ton of stress on the crops through um, you know, because of the huge amount of heat and the lack of rain and, 
and some other factors like grasshoppers and gophers. And <laughs> it's been, a, it's been a tough year for the crops. So we're harvesting early cause they're pretty stressed out, but um, yeah, I guess that's what I do most of the time. Cool. Yeah. And then I guess in the awesome. winter we'll, we'll, in the winter we'll communicate a lot of our results with um, farmers or other researchers um, and uh, often with uh, Dr. Rance's, I should just mention the, the, uh, the man who runs the lab is, is Dr. Martin Anson. He teaches two courses or at least two courses um, at the U of M. And so he'll often bring us on to sort of discuss some of the results too and, and give lectures to his students. Nice. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, yeah, this is really neat. And I think, you know, we chatted about this a bit before we, uh, we were on the podcast here, but um, something that's neat about this uh, for me from a personal level is like thinking about um, our place here and kind of how we start to manage the land to be kind of more in sync with the with the natural systems in this area. But then also, um, as we were chatting about earlier, uh, Matt and I have honeybees now. So we're super conscious, like, especially, <laughs> especially in a drought year like this, we're super conscious that, you know, you, normally you have this beautiful month of July and kind of everything's flowering and there's so much um, abundance for the bees to access. And this year we very quickly realized that on a drought year, you have like a week or 10 days where things were flowering and the rest, like everything kind of burnt out after that. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's interesting that, you know, that's, that's kind of something we're, I, I feel like Matt and I've always thought about, but more so now that we're raising bees, it's, you're so much more observant of like when things are flowering, how long they flower for, um, you know, what times of the season do they flower, trying to get things that don't flower all at the same time. And that will do well in a drought year. Like there's just a lot of things. So it's interesting yeah. and really cool that you guys are a, you know, testing out some of these different, um, you know, different techniques and different ways of doing things. And then also, you know, sharing those results out and, and sort of educating producers on, on how to do it or how to do things differently. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it takes a long time. These, some of these studies are really long-term because it's hard to see the effects on, on something like, you know, soil health in a year or two. Um, sometimes these things can take decades. And actually this is the 30th anniversary of a, of a project where um, organic systems are being compared to conventional systems. That's in Glenlee. So it's kind of, it's kind of cool that these experiments can run for so long and that's when you can really start to see some cool effects. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's interesting. I think we're just from a cultural or societal perspective where we're in this like fast paced mindset where we want to see results like the second we make a change or, or, or mm -hmm, do something yeah. differently. But yeah, when you think about the natural system, 30 years is really short, right? Like that's, that's yeah. probably how long it takes to make a difference in the soil or on the like microbiome of the soil. It's not something that's going to happen in a couple of years. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. You guys have bees. I think that's awesome. Yeah, it's been a really cool process, actually. We just harvested, um, we just, I guess, yeah, extracted our first harvest of honey yesterday. And we had 14 boxes, like 14 honey supers of honey. And we had no idea really how much we would get. We just knew that they were really heavy. 
and Matt was lifting them from a tall ladder. Anyways, not very safe, but we, we figured it out. We've got a better system now. Um, but yeah, we got, got 10 five gallon pails of honey, which is just so much honey off of nice. that many boxes. Anyways, it's just crazy. And there's more out there. So they're such a neat, um, neat creature, but yeah. Yeah. We're really enjoying it. Yeah. They're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Wilson, so I'm curious about two things. The first one is, do you have, um, like, is there a project that's really, you know, near and dear to your heart? I don't want to say like, do you have a favorite project, but like, is there a project that, um, either is ongoing or upcoming that you're kind of most excited about and, and why? Uh, well, I don't know if I could pick a favorite, but, um, I think one really interesting one um well i guess i'm really involved in in one that's in partnership with agriculture and agri-foods canada which is just looking at a whole bunch of different cropping systems or crop rotations um you know kind of on a spectrum of not very diverse sort of your typical like wheat wheat canola uh type of thing to rotations that have like you know intercrops and cover crops and um green manures which are uh, agreement is just a, a crop of heavy legumes, which can fix their own nitrogen through, um, through microbes in the soil. Um, and what farmers can do is plow that into the soil and, or not, or spray it out or whatever, and um, kind of enrich the soil with nitrogen. So it's sort of one way to get around having to use uh, synthetic fertilizers, which are um, a cause of a lot of emissions. So, trying to incorporate those types of crops into a cropping rotation is, is really interesting. So that's a big study that I'm, I spent a lot of time working on and I do find that one really interesting, but I think the organic systems that we experiment with are really interesting too. And, um, and some of the nutrient ones that we've had grad students who um, are doing some pretty novel work in uh, with a product called Struvite. It's a, um, it's actually, it's, it's, it's a, it's a mineral, uh, highly phosphorus. Um, sorry, it's a, it's a mineral that has a high level of phosphorus in it. Um, and it's extracted from wastewater plants. So basically urine, um, and they can take that mineral phosphorus and turn it into a product that farmers could use as a type of fertilizer. So kind of closing that nutrient loop. Um, you know, if you think of humans as a sort of kind of livestock, we eat food and all the nutrients in it. And then we sort of um, you know, kind of just wasted and it ends up flowing into Lake Winnipeg or whatever. But if we could extract that and apply it back to the land, I think that's kind of an exciting, um, innovation. Yeah. I love that. That's so cool. Um, (laughs) uh, yeah, I think, again, I know not everyone is, is like, you know, there's a lot of, Oh, that's, you know, that's gross. And it's like, well, Sure. But in some ways, like humans are kind of gross and we're, there's so many of us and we're making a big impact on the water bodies and the land where we live. So if we can find ways to a reduce that impact through, through reducing our waste and ideally like reusing our waste in a way that is, you know, healthy for soils and plants. And like, you're exactly like exactly what you said, like closes that cycle, that loop, right. Makes it a more of a closed system. So yeah. yeah, that's really cool. I remember yeah, when it, I, sort of, it actually, it, it kind of, so yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Well, as I was gonna say is it kind of solves two problems at once, right? So 
it prevents us from polluting waterways with these nutrients that kind of cause the, like algae blooms and, you know, turn, turn lakes all green and full of algae. And, um, and it, it kind of reduces the, the number of oxygen in the, in the lakes and stuff, which is bad for the fish. So that's a problem when you pollute waters, waterways with nutrients. And it also solves the problem of having to, you know, synthesize these organic or these inorganic fertilizers, which is also a wasteful process. It also creates a lot of emissions. So, um, if we can reuse that, then yeah, it's, it's really helpful. And it's not, um, it, it might sound gross, but it's not like we're just applying straight urine onto uh, a plots. It's like a, it's a purified form. It's a, it's magnesium, ammonium phosphate, and, uh, it's indistinguishable from, you know, other, you know, it's just a chemical compound. It's, it has no, uh, you really know, um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, res- that, guess, yeah, no resemblance, no resemblance to the form that we flushed down the toilet, right? So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's funny when I was living, uh, when I was at UBC in the Okanagan, um, in Kelowna, they actually, I'm not, I, I assume it's still operational, but they had a facility that was, um taking waste from the wastewater treatment plant um and actually they have a really sophisticated wastewater treatment plant there and they they were selling bags of compost that was from oh yeah the, the municipal wastewater treatment plant and I, obviously they didn't advertise it in that way of course um <laughs> per se. <laughs> but as a student, that was something we got to go and see was the, the process and the way that that was done. And yeah, ultimately, if you were buying compost from from the city, um, you know, there was human waste from the wastewater treatment plant that was incorporated into that, um, into that compost. And I just thought it was so interesting, because, again, um, I think it's it's also like a land and a space thing, but on the prairies, or at least in Saskatchewan where we grew up, you know, that was not something that I had ever heard of being done, but it just made so much sense to me, especially in an area like the Okanagan yeah. where their water resources are so, so taxed and so limited. Um, and so to to be able to take a waste product out of the water system you know, not pollute an already strained water system was like, it just made so much sense to me. Um, but I remember at the time thinking to myself, yeah, yeah, I can, I can see why it doesn't say that on the bag. Like it's not, you know, it's not written in that way. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It takes probably a little bit of time for people to get used to that idea, but it, this is practiced around the world. I mean, we're, we'll be one of the last people to, to end up doing it, which we will eventually. Um, but I mean, in Asia and in, and India, and, um, uh, there's there's a lot of countries that are already already doing this. It just makes perfect sense. Yeah, and and typically, like in the you know in those countries that you just named off, we're we're talking about countries where, um, you know, available land space is is really challenging, and available water space in in I guess in comparison to population is a challenge right like there's just so much population in a small small space and access to food resources and water resources is is challenging whereas Canada we have this uh we have this lax way of wasting (laughs) this luxury (laughs) yeah this luxury of lots of space where 
we and and a low population where we can do things to the land and not really see the immediate effects of it and so people are a bit disconnected from the impact yeah. that they're they're having on on the landscape so yeah and 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 on the atmosphere like we, we just we don't think about it because you know smog is not really an mm -hmm. issue here so it's yeah something that's not not as top of mind for people for sure um so the yeah. other thing I was curious about, Wilson, you talked about, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot here or anything, but you talked about graduate students, like within the lab that you work in. Um, is graduate studies something that you think about or are interested in, like at a personal level? Like, do you think you'll do more education in this area? Uh, yeah, maybe. I have thought about it. I've thought about it pretty hard, actually. Um, but I haven't decided i'm going to do it yet anyway i think if i do um i want it to be on a project i'm really interested in and um and maybe when i'm a little bit more established in like the rest of my life um i think shelby and i are just kind of excited to you know both be working now and it'd be good to get a little bit of you know some roots down but yeah. definitely it's a it's something i'm considering yeah for cool yeah, no, that's well, yeah, good. Well, I, would you recommend it? I I would. Yeah, I I definitely I appreciate what you're saying, and would definitely anybody who comes straight out of their undergrad and says, "Oh, you know, I'm gonna jump straight into a master's." I'm always like, "Okay, like I get it," and I know the education system kind of pushes us in that direction now. Um, but I don't know. I think there's so much that, like you say, you you want to be working on a project you're really passionate about. Um, and I feel like until you get some, some you know, some hands-on experience or some lived experience, uh, it's hard to really know what projects really are really exciting to you. And so you can make a decision and spend, you know, another two years intensively studying that topic and then later realize, oh, shoot, like this was okay, but it wasn't you know, super interesting to me. Like I think about if I would have studied, if I would have done my master's right out of my undergrad, I would not have done, like I wouldn't have studied what I studied and I wouldn't have been interested even in what I'm interested in now. And so I think, yeah, I, I like your approach and I think it's, it's nice to wait a little bit and figure out, you know, what you actually yeah. want to spend more time on. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, I also, you can't, there's a rule where you can't, um, study in grad school with the professor who you work for simultaneously. So I couldn't do my master's with Martin uh, while working for him. Um, so that's kind of the one wrinkle, but I guess, and you know, I get, I kind of get all the benefits of like seeing all the different projects and helping the grad students with them and seeing all the cool results without having to do like all this, you know, laborious writing and <laughs> and uh and stats and everything so i just get all the perks without having to do all the work for sure yeah i was also going <laughs> to say that like your job is really the cool practical side of graduate research without the like here sit here for four months and read papers and then do a lit review <laughs> so. yeah <laughs> <laughs> again there's that's super valuable and it's important to the research process like i'm not devaluing that but uh yeah it's not the most enjoyable when you're actually having to do it so yeah you get the cool yeah the cool part of the job for sure yeah um yeah well this is awesome wilson i yeah i'm so interested in kind of 
you know, learning more about this and, and, um, you know, even trying to apply some of this stuff in our own, like in our own, um, on our own land here and, and that kind of thing. So I'm curious, like, and I'm, I know we can direct folks to your website, but, um, if, you know, if there's someone listening or someone interested, like whether it's a farmer or just a landowner, um, you know, what is available to them from natural systems agriculture to, to learn from, like where, where do they go for this information? Um, how do they access it? Is it something where they can contact you guys and, and learn a bit more? Like, how does that process work? Uh, yeah, for sure. The, we do have a website and actually we're in the process of kind of building a new, new website, but there's a whole bunch of contacts on there that if they have specific questions, they can email email us for um and if we couldn't answer their questions we could direct them to we could probably direct them to somebody who can cool i love that yeah that's awesome um and then the other thing i was kind of curious about within the the lab like um the plot of land that you're working with to you know to test out these different systems um are you like is it in partnership with with local producers or I guess like whose land are you performing some of these studies on? Uh, yeah, I guess. So there's kind of three main areas that um, the department of agriculture at the university of Manitoba does the research on. And um, one of those sites is in Carmen, Manitoba. And there's another one in Glen Lee, which, just, which is just sort of South 20 minutes South of Winnipeg. And then actually on the campus, there's, uh, I actually don't know how big it is, but maybe like 40 acres or something of land that is available for, for research too. So a lot of the work we do is on those farms. And then there's also projects that are, yeah, like you said, in collaboration with farmers where we'll actually give them seed and, or give them whatever they need to kind of execute these trials on their own, or we can just come to their farm and you know, take soil samples and take some biomass samples and, and do some assessments that way too. But yeah, like one, you might find uh, this project interesting, but there's this project um, that Martin and another uh, graduate student named Michelle Karkner did where they, it's called the participatory plant breeding program. And they actually collaborated with like dozens of farmers to um, breed different wheat and oat varieties uh, based on the selections the farmers actually made. So instead of just kind of your standard researchers doing these things, this project actually involved farmers to select their own seed heads. And then they would send those back to the lab and we would, or they would analyze them and thresh them out and then do a seed increase, send them back. And they would do kind of years of selection um, to keep the farmers involved in the seeds they're actually growing. And it's kind of more localized, um, varieties for sort of farm specific or region specific, which is pretty cool. And those are um, all under organic management. Nice. Yeah, that's really cool. I think, you know, as a whole, and I know this is changing over time, but um, you know, the academic institutions, there's often been kind of a separation. It's, it's like, it's research and then it's, you know, people out there doing the things and oftentimes those two things are kind of happening in silos and the information the information 
crossing uh, doesn't happen quite as smoothly as either side would hope, right? So finding ways for for academia to collaborate and be participatory um, in research. And I mean, in, 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 you know, my world, we're starting to see this a lot more in terms of like community-based research where community members and, and community leaders are really, really the ones taking the lead on, on uh, doing, doing a lot of the research work, which is really cool because it starts to engage people in the process, not just, okay, here's this paper that was produced and now you can read it and learn from it, but rather it being, you know, you're, you're integrated, your community is integrated throughout the process, which has been really cool to see. So um, yeah, I'm glad that's happening here too. Yeah, totally. Cool. Well, this has been awesome, Wilson. I, I feel like we're going to have to have another um, conversation sometime and dive into more of the details on, on some of these different methods. Um, cause yeah, I'm just, I'm so curious and I know Matt and I will probably be giving you guys a call or reaching out sometime cause we're in the process of planning out some little, uh, test plots, I guess, on our property to sort of, uh, think about a like soil health and then B, um, the sort of flowering season of different um, crops. So, you know, if we think of the different flowering crops, how do we incorporate them throughout the landscape in a way that we have flowers for bees all year long? So I don't know if that's something that um, yeah. you guys would have recommendations on, but we've been, that's been deep into his own kind of research hole, <laughs> trying to figure out what to do. And like you say, I'm sure it'll be a yeah. multi, <laughs> multi-year approach to figure it out. So. <laughs> yeah you're gonna need some sheep or some bison or something <laughs> yeah well and that's what i said i was like we might need to get some sheep actually one thing we did this year that's been really cool to experiment with is we built um so we raise uh meat chickens and laying hens and turkeys as well and this year we built oh, like nice. a, a chicken they call it a chicken tractor but like a mobile fence for yeah. your chickens. Yeah. And it's been so cool. Like, again, nice. it's, kind of, it's a drought year. So it's been tough as well, because like, there just isn't as much in our, in our, our hay crop as there usually is. But so we have to move that right. fence more, more often for sure. But um, it's been really cool, because we'll, we'll have it in one spot for three days, and then we sort of move it around. And there's like this patchwork of, you know, the, the chickens get access to a space which they're so much happier um and b you know grasses and bugs and all the things that they like eating um but then we also get the benefit of having you know fertilizer and chicken fertilizer is fantastic and so having fertilizer throughout that plot as well so we have no results for this very um non-academic study but we're looking forward to seeing what it's like next year nice that's awesome yeah it'll be good cool well thank you so much Wilson for taking the time to chat with me today and be here today I don't know if there was anything else you wanted to um share with listeners or or uh, you know about where to reach you or anything um but yeah that was all the questions that I had to pick your brain about today 
Uh, yeah, no, I don't think I have anything else to add. I guess if you, maybe you're able to put the Natural Systems Agriculture website uh, link somewhere in the in on Spotify or whatever, and yeah, like if if you want to talk specifics about any any of the um, actual the, the specific projects we're doing, then I could definitely put you in touch with you know the grad student or the or the professor or whoever. Yeah, awesome. No, I will definitely put the the link to the website. Um, you know, everywhere that the podcast will be shared so that it'll be linked. And then, yeah, I'm going to do a bit of digging and some of the things that you mentioned today, I'd like to learn a little bit more about. And I know our listeners probably would too. So um, yeah, I'll probably reach out and, and bug you for some, some, uh, some connections. So yeah, thank you so much, Wilson. Great. It's yeah. been awesome. Yeah, thank you. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. We'll talk to you soon. for tuning into this week's episode of the sustainable stories podcast this podcast is hosted by myself jenna inglot as well as roxanne wagner from sage sustainable solutions consulting for a full list of episodes as well as more information about sage check us out online at sagesustainable.com and as always we welcome your feedback thoughts and suggestions catch you next time